Um, we launch into our series on First and Second Samuel. And so the title this morning is Why Samuel, subtitled, Give Us a King. This morning, I am super, super excited to launch in on our new series in these two books. And when we launch into a new book, if you're new to Trinity, we like to preach, I think literally every book that we've gone through, our first sermon is why Galatians, why Isaiah, why this morning, first and second Samuel, which by the way, are really one book, um, but it was divided uh, probably because of its, its size. I had a friend that was preaching in a preaching class it's called homiletics, and he was, he was a hilarious guy in the class. This is a, this is a class of about 20, a uh, little less than 20 guys, so it's a small class. Um, knew this guy very well, good friend. He was mercilessly, he would mercilessly mock everyone, and he was good at it. I mean, there's some people who are, they try to be funny, and yeah, it's just not there, right? And then there are those, this guy just he was a stitch, and he, had, and he knew it, and he was confident in his humor, as he should be. Um, but preaching was another thing. And so he came to the class. Each of us had to preach in front of the class and be critiqued by the class. And he was, his confidence in humor did not translate to confidence in preaching, and that's probably a good thing. His opening illustration was about taking off in an airplane, and his sermon continued, And it just kind of went on and on. And he kept going back to this illustration that we're circling the runway, we're circling the runway, we're circling the runway, and you can see things from up here, and et cetera, and et cetera, and et cetera. And the illustration just never really ended, and not sure that the sermon ever really began, or we could say took off. And so when it came time for the class to critique One of my classmates in deadpan humor said the sermon was pretty good. I just didn't know if you were ever going to land the plane. And it might feel a bit like that this morning. Tim, land the plane. This morning, we're going to fly over the books of Samuel. Pretty high, 30,000 foot view of Samuel. And hopefully, at the end, slightly land the plane. But come back, come back next week in the weeks following where we will not only land the plane, we will get off the plane, we will walk the cities, we will walk with these different people that we're introducing this morning. I want to encourage you to spend just a few minutes uh, watching an overview on your own time of First and Second Samuel by the Bible Project. They are fantastically done. We've shown different ones of them to you in the past. Just want to encourage you towards that because it's going to help you. It unpacks for you so well in a short video. Where are we going? And so um, I think just recommend that to you. By the time we're finished with First and Second Samuel, we hope... That preaching through these books helps us to know and understand our Bibles better. In preaching through books, the reason why we, many reasons why, but 
A reason why we preach through books of the Bible is it helps you put your Bible together. Rather than dipping into a scripture here, dipping into a scripture there, as you preach through a book, you get the context of the book and you see the arguments being made and you see the storyline being fleshed out. And so we preach through books here at Trinity for the most part. By studying the Old Testament, our goal is to better understand the New Testament. All right, the New Testament wasn't written in a vacuum. The New Testament actually assumes of the reader that we have an understanding of our Old Testaments. And so it's very important, don't dismiss your Old Testament. It will help us to see that in going through these two books, it will help us to see that we are just like these Old Testament people. And it will help us to see that we are in need of Christ that Christ is, well, Christ was their only hope as they look forward to him. And Christ is our only hope as we look back to Christ. We want to preach the word at Trinity. And our hope is that in coming to Trinity, you are brought before the word of God. But not for the sake. Like there's so much good information in First and Second Samuel. There's so much neat things that you walk away and you'd be like, wow, that was a really neat thing. We don't preach for the sake of information. We preach for the sake of transformation. That God, yeah, I'm not saying so belittle the information. No, that God would use the information to transform our lives. If there is not transformation, then, then we will just have knowledge that puffs up. So beware of that. I want to pause and pray. And pray for transformation in 2022. I also want to pray for Eric DeWitt this morning as he's in the hospital. He had a pretty severe um, flare-up of Crohn's uh, this past week. Uh, Christmas Day, his birthday, the day after, <laughs> yeah, all that. And so um, let's lift him up and pray. Father, we do. We lift up our brother Eric and just ask that you would touch him and heal him. Give him strength. Lord, give the doctors wisdom as they weigh out different um, pathways to go forward. Is it another surgery? What is that a, a major surgery? Is that less invasive? All of those questions are being asked. And uh, we pray that you would help him. I pray that, uh, Lord, that you would, you would manage the pain um, that he would be walking through and that you would help him and that uh, you would not only care for him, but his sisters, and mom and dad as well. Lord, we pray. Father, as we look to your word this morning, First and Second Samuel, Lord, we don't want to simply say at the end of this series, wow, look at all the information we have and look back at all the things that we learned. But Lord, let us look back and see how you have transformed our hearts to love you more, to worship you more, God. I pray that you might grow us I pray that you might grow our hearts in love of you. Lord, reveal yourself to us through your preached word as we go through these books. Lord, bless our time this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To our guests, thank you so much for being here this morning, including, I don't know if you noticed, but Mario and Luigi are here, uh, affectionately called Josiah and Justin. All right, just needed to point that out. The um, Magnum PI mustaches are in now, 2022. <laughs> 
Point number one, context, context, context. If you're not new to Trinity, you're not surprised by point number one. We need to know, how did we come to 1 Samuel? What brought us here? There's a lot of context that takes place before we get to this barren woman, chapter one, Hannah crying out to the Lord for a baby child. What's happened to bring us to this point in 1 Samuel? Let's take a 10-minute overview, quick overview of what brings us to this place in the book of Samuel. We're going to go back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, all right? God is creating the world. Genesis 2, God's creating the world and Adam and Eve, and he places them in the garden. Genesis 3 tells us of Adam and Eve's sin, that essentially they were saying to God, thank you, but no thank you. We'll do things our way, or if I could say, and I'm going to repeat this often, they were basically, quote unquote, doing what was right in their own eyes. And as a result, God brings a curse to them and a curse to humanity, and we live today in a sin-cursed world. But in chapter 3, we also get that first ray of hope. It's called, the fancy word is the euangelion. The gospel presents itself, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter 3 marches on through chapter 11, and you're seeing really dark times. Sinful man is spiraling downward. Then we come to chapter 12, and we come to this guy, Abram. You know him as Abraham. In chapter 12 and the following chapters, God makes this promise to Abraham that from Abraham, from Abraham's seed, he's going to bless Abraham and Sarah in their old age with a child, which will become a family, which will become a people, which will become a nation. God is so going to bless Abraham um, that this people will be a blessed people living in a blessed land And they are to be a blessing to the surrounding peoples around them. That promise that God makes to him in Genesis chapter 12 is called a covenant. It's God's covenant promise. So you jump to chapter 18, and from 18 to the end, you've got the account of four generations. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. And that's really just the the telling of those four generations' stories. And often, well, it's an honest account. It's an ugly account because these generations, well, they're a mess. And they're God's people. Remember in Sunday school, if you went to Sunday school, then you would remember Father Abraham. He had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. And so let's just praise the Lord. Right arm. It's where I grew up. My mama had me, and the next day, I was doing Father Abraham. (laughs) It is the Christianized version of the hokey pokey. (laughs) And it wasn't until I was an adult I realized, oh, that was just filler time in children's church to like, oh, we don't know what else to do with the kids. This is a long song, you know, and you just keep making up more and more parts. Well, here's the thing that I learned also as an adult. The song is right that you are from Father Abraham, that there is a line, and you are from Father Abraham. He is your father, Um, and it's right to just praise the Lord. 
So Genesis ends, it's amazing, uh, in chapter 49, verse 10, it says this of Judah, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, mm. nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Wow, okay, that's, that's pointing to something bigger than Judah. All right, and then we move to Exodus, and the family has now grown quite a bit. Uh, they're quite large, and you should be reading Exodus and going, what happened to the covenant? The people of God are not living out this blessed life in this blessed land. They're actually slaves in someone else's land working their land. And God, um, in that, what? He raises up Moses. He raises up a deliverer to deliver God's people, right? To bring them to the promised land. That all sounds good until they get out from Egypt and they refuse to trust in the Lord and look to the Lord. And what starts off strong, leaving Egypt, the people quickly, what? Do what is right in their own eyes. Which delays them in the wilderness 40 long years. Generation must die off. And amazingly, it didn't have to be that way. But they were stubborn and unfaithful. And here's the thing is Exodus reminds us of Genesis, just as Adam and Eve were cast out from God's presence due to their sin. But God speaks grace in Genesis 3.15. The Exodus, the people of God, have to keep a distance from the Lord, but God puts his presence. He tabernacles, build a tabernacle, and his presence is so clear throughout Exodus. It's really just a beautiful picture of his grace and mercy. We jump forward uh, well, we can't do them all, but you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Joshua. We jump to Joshua. Joshua shows us how the people of God will come to the promised land. And Joshua is a godly man who seeks to call on the people of God to call on God. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And they arrive eventually in the promised land. And while there, the wars, initially they, they cease. And it's a time of peace, or we could say a time of prosperity. And God has shown himself to be faithful. At different times as you're reading through the Old Testament, you should be asking, wait, what happened to Abraham's covenant? We're in slavery. Oh, God is faithful. He delivers us through Moses. Oh, now we're in the promised land. Everything's going good at this point in the book of Joshua. But it is a difficult book. It is a book of war. And God is showing himself to be faithful to the promise that he's made to Abraham. And these people in Joshua are living in the good of those promises. God is good. God is faithful. God is covenant keeping. And the people, they're no longer just this ragtag, rough shoddy group of people drifting through the wilderness. Now they're becoming a nation. And things are looking up. And then turn the page and you're in Judges. Judges. God has provided for his people, but in Judges we see that they, the people have forgotten God. Who needs God when you've got all this peace and prosperity? And they begin to do what is right in their own eyes. And so you read Judges and you see enemies are lurking 
What's worse is that the people of God begin to lust to be like those surrounding nations. Enemies are pressing in and it's in that adversity that the people of God finally begin to call out to God and God's answer to them comes through these different judges. God raises up judges. They were leaders. They were leaders to bring justice and judgment and they were people that uh, were to lead the people into godliness. But the problem was is that the judges are quite a mess themselves. And the entire book is this whirlpool. It's just the flushing of the toilet. Like, it's just a downward spiral of disaster, godlessness. The book ends, we already read it, quoted it many times, the last verse of the book. In those days, there's no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's quite a statement. Well, you turn the page, literally you turn the page and you're in Ruth. Ruth takes place during the years of the judges. This is quite beautiful. It's good for us to see because as bad as things are in judges, not everything and not everyone is bad in judges. Boaz is a godly man who takes Ruth in who is a helpless and hopeless foreign widow who trusts in the Lord. We preached uh, Ruth a few years back, the big theme, Redeemer Kinsman. And you might think of Judges and Ruth like this. The day of the Judges were unbelievably messy. How will God keep his covenant? That he made to Abraham. Will he keep his covenant that he made to Abraham? Ruth. That's how he will keep his covenant. God's plan will not be thwarted by sinful man. This will not be the end of the covenant. And so God sovereignly brings together Boaz and Ruth to keep his promise. That's why the book of Judges ends with that, that, that statement that I keep saying. The book of Ruth ends in a genealogy. Why does it end in a genealogy? Oh, it's beautiful. The point of the genealogy is to say, I'm a covenant-keeping God. David's coming, and we know from the line of David comes another king. And so I'm not going to read the whole genealogy to you. It just ends there. It's how the book of Ruth ends. And, G- and Jesse fathered David. The genealogy is telling us God is faithful to his covenant promises. And we can read the genealogy and say, praise God that in the midst of the days of the judges, in the midst, those guys were just a wreck. Everything is just a mess in those days. God will have a people. Here's the genealogy that's gonna take us there. God is sovereign. God is active. God is faithful. And it tells us, turn the page of our Bibles and read about this guy, David. When you come to 1 Samuel, there's a context. It's thousands of years that we just covered in about 10 minutes that leads up to this woman named Hannah pleading for a baby child. Going to run through some key figures to help us get some handles in the weeks to come. First of all is Hannah. The book opens with this account. She's a godly 
barren woman, Hannah. We'll hear more about her next week. She fears the Lord. She trusts in God. And so we find her praying and crying out to God, God, give me a baby. And the Lord hears her cry and gives her a son who she dedicates to the Lord. And what you need to know is that Hannah is a picture of Israel. Barren woman, barren Israel. Hopeless, helpless woman. She can't produce a child. Israel, hopeless, helpless. You cannot produce fruitfulness. And yet, God gives her a child. And God gives fruitfulness to Israel. One author put it like this, the world is falling apart with a dimly lit lamp still burning. Hannah is that lamp still burning. And her child is the Lord saying, Israel, I am not done. I am a covenant-keeping God. Even in your barren state, I will provide for you a child in your hopelessness. I give you a child of hope in your darkness, in your barrenness. I will bring fruitfulness. Again, more on her next week. Eli. Eli's the priest at the time. He has two sons. Uh, I think the Bible calls them worthless fellows. <laughs> That's Eli's sons. They are a mess. They steal from the sacrifices that are being offered to God. They do worse than that. We'll get to that. But to put it in modern imagery, it'd be as if my sons, Tyler, Tim, and Tanner, were helping themselves to your offerings and indulging on themselves. Actually, it'd be a lot worse than that. But that gives you just a modern picture. These sons of Eli did what they did with no conscience, no shame, no guilt. And Eli was just kind of clueless and indifferent to that. In the meantime, the Philistines are an ongoing annoyance of an enemy to the Israelites. They're a burr in their side. There's just, as you read through, and I encourage you to do so, read these books as we're preaching through them. But it's just Philistines are attacking, Philistines are attacking, Philistines are like, stop it with the Philistines. There always seems to be war. In chapter 4, the Philistines capture the ark. No, not Noah's ark. That ark, you saw it in the movies. Indiana Jones, that's the ark that they captured. The ark of the covenant. It's a big deal. And it's really quite hilarious what takes place. We will cover that in the weeks to come. But the ark represented the presence of the Lord. Imagine, it was as if the Philistines caught, captured the presence of the Lord. Or what represented the presence of the Lord. If things were bad for the Israelites prior to capturing the ark, oh, things get really difficult after. And hilariously, don't want to get sidetracked, but things get really bad for the Philistines after capturing the ark as well. Well, they've captured the ark um, Eli's sons are killed in battle against the Philistines. And when Eli hears the news that the Philistines have the ark, presence of the Lord, he falls over backwards, he breaks his neck, and he dies. One of his sons' wife went into labor. She delivers a baby, and she calls him Ichabod. The glory has departed. Wow. So think of how Judges ended. And now we're five chapters. We're just five chapters into Samuel. Let's talk about Samuel. 
Samuel is Hannah's child. Chapter 6, Hannah's son Samuel is appointed to be the judge of Israel. So it's in keeping. And here, the, under his um, leadership, the ark returns to Israel. It's a fun story we'll get to. But eventually the Philistines realize we got to get rid of this thing. It's literally killing us. In chapter 7, Samuel leads the people to victory over the Philistines. In chapter 8, he appoints his two sons to judge. They're not much better than Eli's sons. And so we're in a mess again. And that's where we come to chapter 8, the text that we read at the start. The people are saying to Samuel, Behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, on the one hand, that's not a big deal because God has promised them a ruler. That they would have a ruler that would come from Judah. But on the other hand, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. The problem is not that they want a king. It's that they lustfully want to be like the other nations. They are in the world and they are of the world. We want a king because we want to look like We want to look like them. Looks and appearances are very important in these two books. Um, It's one of the things that we'll be seeing. So much detail is being given to exterior appearances. And even in this lustful cry, give us a king, is this desire to look like the nations. It's to have this military looking guy. Like we would say today, we want our president to look presidential. Well, they wanted a king that looked kingly, meaning he looked strong. I mean, he, looked, he, he looked capable. We'll see about Saul. Like, I'm just going to tell us over and over again. He's a, he's a head taller than everybody else. It mattered, external appearances. And this is God saying, we, this is God's people, excuse me, saying, we want to look like them, those other nations. We want to be like them. We want our king to have an image like their king has. We want a certain look about us, a look of strength. I mean, after all, look at the Philistines. They've been defeating us. They captured our ark. Maybe we can look like them. We want a strong king, a king who can lead us into victory, a powerful king. Why? What's behind all this? Well, God is not good enough for us. We want worldliness, and we want to trust in what they trust in. I mean, it looks like it's working out good for those nations. And I want to just kind of call a time out here, grab your attention for a second, issue a word of caution. In our passion for politics... Please don't mishear me. Some of you are new this morning. I don't have time to build all the bridges. Just stick around. Get to know me. Quick bridge. We as Christians ought to be politically involved. All right? That's all the bridge you get. All right? But here's the caution. In our love, in our passion, in our lust... For a certain kind of politic, there can be such a lust that it actually disregards God. Now, it's weird. Wanting to have a king wasn't a bad thing. God promised them a king. Wanting a king to be a replacement of God, that's a problem. 
God wasn't good enough in their day for them. So I want to encourage you, don't simply long for and desire Christian values. Christian values are good. Sorry if you're new, a lot of bridges there, no time. But we can desire those things, good things, to the elimination of God himself. That's the caution. And that's where the church starts to look more like the world than the church. Wow, it got quiet in here. As our politic for conservative values, like you know you've got an idol when you're willing to sin to get it. What I see in the church, and I'm speaking broadly of the church today in our country, we're willing to sin to get something that we is good. Christian values. Who of us doesn't want that? So we desire the God, small g, as opposed to the God of those values. The small g God is conservative values. So there's irony there. Just be cautioned as we continue in the weeks to come. God tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. God gives them what they want. Sometimes you don't want to get what you want to get. Trust in the Lord when you pray and you pray and you pray. And the answer is no, no, no. So glad the Lord doesn't answer all of my prayers. What a mess I'd be in. Here, God gives them what they want. Enter Saul. We're told, again, appearances, he's tall, he's handsome, he's, he's a head taller than everyone else, and he looks great, he looks like a king, he's presidential, he is amazing how things haven't changed in so many ways. How much, be honest with yourself, how much do outward appearances influence you? They influence me a lot. God help us. So this king, this guy that they want, he, in appearance, has it all. He was mighty. He was mighty in battle. The people can be saying, we're getting it done. And so you have these chapters now in Samuel of victory and prosperity, which brings us to chapter 13. And chapter 13 is this hinge moment in the life of Saul. Saul dishonors the Lord with sacrifices by doing, say it with me, doing what is right in his own eyes. His heart becomes exposed and that he doesn't trust the Lord. Samuel confronts him and tells him that God is going to rip the kingdom from your hands. And things quickly spiral downward from there. God does just that, and that's how we come to David. David, not the good looker of Saul. Like the David, we know, we, we really... Like, if you're living in the day of David, you're going, Saul's our guy. Who's David? Like, Jesse's got all these children. Like, pick any of them. They look kingly. 
But that guy, he didn't even make it to the party for Samuel to evaluate him. He's still back watching the sheep. He's ruddy, we're told. Now, if you've been in Sunday school, again, if you know Father Abraham, you know David. You know David. You know David and Goliath, right? Like, you know something. Five minutes in Sunday school will tell you about David. But what we need to know, who is David? Well, for them, he's a nobody. He doesn't look the part. He's a big contrast to Saul, who looks the part. Man looks to the outward appearances. What? God looks to the heart. Lord, help us. David is a man after God's heart who trusts in God. And that's how we come to Samuel 17, where David battles with Goliath. Thankfully, in our children's ministry, we don't teach David and Goliath like I grew up. Or like I grew up teaching David and Goliath. So I literally... I'm in my 20s and I'm preaching and I don't know what I'm doing. And I, I preach that David was prayed up, practiced up, and purposeful. Look at that. Three Ps. Come on. <laughs> he what? Yes. Yes. And so because he was prayed up, practiced up, and purposeful, you need to be like David. And that's what's going to defeat the giants in your life. Well, that's sort of pathetic. Um, it's just not what David and Goliath are about at all. Um, David isn't the hero of the story. And so for those of you who have children in the, in the children's ministry here at Trinity, what your children are hearing is God is the hero of the story. It's not about amazing David. It's about God is amazing. It's about Abraham's covenant. God is a covenant-keeping God. And so, yeah, someone like David, he's not, wow, you're amazing. It's God, you're amazing. You show your strength by calling weakness. He's not kingly or presidential. But he's going to be the man that God determines to you. Oh, it's just so hopeful for all of us. You're not the man. You're not the woman. Amazing. You're not the hero of the story. Read God's word not to find how you're the hero. Read how God is the faithful, sovereign, covenant-keeping God all the way through this start to the finish. God is faithful. He is faithful. And so I laugh at myself and some of the silliness things that I taught in years ago. And we jump forward to 2 Samuel, chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Is he talking about Solomon? Yeah. Is he talking about Jesus? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a forever kingdom. Sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, everything's looking up right there. I mean, forever kingdom. And then you have chapter 11. David, in his prosperity, when the kings go out to war, 
King David stays home. And so we have Bathsheba. We have adultery. We have murder. We have, quote, unquote, he displeased the Lord. He repents. God forgives. But to read all of that sordid detail leaves you longing for another king. Or at least it ought to. Is this, is this the best we get? Is this the guy? Even in all of that mess, it's a pointer to the king who's to come, who will be without fail, who will be sinless. Second Samuel ends on that bad note. Actually, it gets worse. David, the, the book ends, the two books of Samuel ends with David counting the people. He's taking a census. And we think, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, the big deal with counting the people is that a king would do that to determine his strength of his army. He's counting the people. Like, how many, how many, how many people do I got? Am I strong enough to defeat my enemies? If you think back to the Exodus, they sang, you know, we don't trust in chariots and horses. David is saying, well, I do. And I'm not trusting in the Lord. That's the big deal of how Samuel will end. It's him counting his army or his people so he can determine his strength rather than I trust in the Lord. I don't need the numbers. I need to trust in my God. Which is to say, King David was doing what was right in his own eyes. He's saying, I trust in horses and chariots and numbers rather than God. And we roll into the books of 1 and 2 Kings and we see that the kingdom gets split in two. But the mess, back to the mess, I mean, it's a yo-yo, mess, up and down, prosperity, battles. Is this God's plan? Is everything just falling out of control? Has God forgotten his people, his covenant to Abraham, etc., etc.? Those are the things we're going to be looking at. So number three, why preach 1 and 2 Samuel? Well, firstly, we're not preaching Samuel to say, look at Samuel, like I just said, or look at David, be like David, be like Samuel, and that's not what we're doing. But we do want to learn from them. We want to learn from the other Old Testament people who everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We want to look at that. We want to say, let's not be that people. God help us. The rhythm of the books of Samuel is similar to the rhythm of Christianity today. It's up, it's down, it's up, it's down, it's a yo-yo. Imagine, jump into the New Testament with me. All right, John the Baptist is in prison and he's talking to his disciples and he said, go ask Jesus if he is who he says he is. Now that's a weird question. Why is he asking that question? John the Baptist, the one that when Mary showed up and John's in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, he leapt. John the Baptist, the one who said, I'm a forerunner. I'm not the event. The event's coming behind me. Uh, John the Baptist, the, the, the one who said, I'm unworthy to untie the man's sandals. John the Baptist, he's baptizing his disciples. Jesus comes walking up and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now he's in prison and he's saying to his disciples, can you go find out if he's the guy who he says he is? Same guy. Why? Well, because the kingdom's down. This is a king. Kingdom is down right now. 
It's up, it's down, it's up, it's down. Right now it's down. And what Jesus is gonna say to him, I'm the guy, but also in other words, he's gonna say, and it's going further down. In your perspective, things are gonna get a whole lot more difficult than John, you're in prison. Jesus tells them, I'm the one. I'm the one that all those Old Testament prophets prophesied about. I'm that guy. I'm the one who the entire Old Testament is anticipating. I'm that guy. I am the Genesis 3.15 guy. I'm the ultimate fulfillment of Abraham's covenant. I am the root and the descendant of David. How can that be? What does that mean? I'm the root of David because, well, I created David (laughs) and I'm the descendant of David. I'm gonna take on human flesh and be born through the line of David. Oh, it's just stunning. He is the Revelation 22. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. I'm that guy. And John, it's gonna get worse. You have no idea how bad this whole thing, this kingdom thing is gonna get. I'm the king, but I'm the king who's gonna willingly be sacrificed for your sins. I will be sac- the lion of Judah will be the lamb of God, the sacrificial lamb. He, the one who is strong, will become the weak so that we who are weak will be made strong in Christ. The king will lay down his life that you and I might be saved. The lion of Judah, the lamb of God will be slaughtered for our sin. The king will lay down his life that you and I might be saved. So why are we going through Samuel? Three quick reasons. Thanks for sticking with me, trying to land the plane at this point. Number one, to love Jesus more. That's why we're going through these books. In a very real sense, I think we could say the next year of sermons is one long call to worship. It's what it is. It's a call to worship. Come, worship the king. Worship the king. Let there be more shouting and more singing and more dancing and more clapping and more expression in our worship, not because anyone is telling you it's time to be expressive, but because you're falling in love with Jesus. He's the king who laid down his life, sacrificed himself for our sins. Basically, I'm saying that we're preaching through the books of Samuel so that we might treasure Christ more. Trinity exists to treasure Christ, but it also exists to grow in Christ. So number two, to help us put our Bibles together. Kind of already alluded to this, but I believe that going through Samuel will help us piece our Bibles together. You start to go, oh, you see, Samuel didn't just fall out of the sky and it's not like it's indifferent to what's in front of it or after it. And that's why we belabored that first point and walked through that overview What happens when you start to see the the storyline of Scripture, the redemptive thread that runs through the entire Scripture, when you start to see the Old Testament, oh, it's pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. Samuel is going to be pointing to Jesus. Ah, it helps you love your Bible more. It starts making sense out of, oh, this is what's going on here. And as I said earlier, it helps you when you're reading your New Testament and going, oh, I get that. They were talking about that back there idea when they put the name King Jesus 
above Jesus' head. That didn't come in a vacuum. It's been building to this moment for thousands of years. It is one story of redemption, not 66 separate books. It's not a story telling of this guy and a random story of that guy and a random story of this guy. It's a story of our amazing, loving, good, gracious, faithful, covenant-keeping God. It tells the story of how man seeks to wreck the plan of God, and even in their sinfulness, God remains steadfast and faithful, covenant-keeping God. And through these people, mess that they are, up, down, up, down, mess that they are, mess that we are, God remains faithful today. Mess that we are in in our culture today. Oh no, what's happening? Oh, not as bad as judges. Not as bad as John the Baptist. Not in America. It reveals to us that we are those people. Like, in a very real sense, nothing's changed other than the shoes. That's it. Sandals and ropes. Other than that, what's in the heart, still there. And we've sought to do what's right in our own eyes. And God has not abandoned you. Or me. You're here this morning as proof of God's goodness and his faithfulness. You might even be here rejecting him. I'm telling you, you're here this morning because of his goodness and his faithfulness. Abraham's covenant is kept in Jesus Christ. And that's what we see on the pages of Samuel. So we preach Samuel to help us to treasure Christ, but also to grow in Christ. We preach so that we might grow, grow in godliness, grow in our love for him. Samuel will be like a mirror held up in front of us and we'll see the ugliness of our sin. And I pray we'll repent and see the beauty of God's gracious forgiveness. God, help us not to trust in kings and governments and systems and self and this world and the things that this world trusts in. Samuel shows us that we need godly leaders who will set their face on God and say, look, I'm a mess at times. I'm very imperfect. I get it wrong, but I'm setting my face on Christ, so follow me. Let's go. Let's go. I pray that Trinity would be filled with men and women who would finish well. I pray that we would have parents who would be faithful in seeking to raise children in the Lord and for the Lord God, help us as we read about Eli and Samuel and the mess that their sons were in. This is a great day and a great time. And it's a great book to call us to repentance. And so I just encourage us to bow our knees regularly to his rule and reign in our lives. Lastly, we preach Samuel evangelistically. Samuel is narrative in its genre. It's story. Here's the thing. Its story is the gospel. Did you know that? You've probably read it before. You remember? You need to hear it. Its story is the gospel. So I want to encourage you, because its story is the gospel, invite friends and family, because each Sunday, here's what we're going to do. We're going to preach the good news of Jesus Christ as we preach Hannah and Eli and Saul and Samuel and David. They're all pointing to a better savior, a better good news. The good news is not, oh, King David, he's our king now. Wow, as all the, all the people like celebrated and danced, right? No, that's not the good news. The good news is a better king is coming. He is Jesus. So why do we preach Samuel? 
Well, it's going to help us to treasure Christ, grow in Christ, and proclaim Christ. If you would, please take your communion elements and you can open those. If you don't have them, you're not a distraction. We have some more on the table. Please feel free. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, please just bypass the elements. It'd be in, inappropriate for you to take of them. This is a celebration of who we trust in for the forgiveness of our sins. This, I kind of have to laugh at these things, right? Like, they're not good. They're, they're not, you know, they're often stale. I, I, you know, they're just this, though. This silly wafer represents the body of Christ. This is Christ being broken on your behalf, on my behalf. And so as we were exhorted at the start of this service, or um, Rick's offering, that so often we're called to remember, Paul calls us to remember what Christ has done. So let's take of this together. And then there's this juice. And we do encourage parents to parent children because it's not a snack. This represents the very blood of Christ. We need to take these seriously, what we do this morning. Christ's blood poured out on our behalf. Let's take together. So God, we thank you. You can stand with me. We thank you for your mercy that you've poured out in our lives. Be magnified as we close out our time together with joyful singing for all that you have done for us.